Welcome to the Cannamatic Podcast, where cannabis healthcare, education, and advocacy merge with products, services, ideas, creatives, as well as data and research. So stay tuned as we take you on a journey with the Cannamatic. How long have I been using cannabis and how did I come in contact with it? Uh, I saw it in my neighborhood uh, growing up, but myself actually using it um, wasn't until I became a teenager. I'm 35, and I can say now that I've been using cannabis for over 20 years. A friend of mine came one day, was like, hey man, do you want to smoke a joint? And I was like, yes. And the rest is history as a teenager. How did cannabis impact my life as a teenager and growing up uh, to become an adult? I was actually expelled from high school for possession of cannabis. I got caught with a quarter of flour at school, and I was expelled from public school and subsequently sent to alternative school, where I actually did over, I think, 32 weeks or 30 weeks or something of that nature, and I ended up getting student of the year. And upon completion of that program, I went back to public schools. Did I smoke during my time in alternative school? Uh, not really. Uh, there were a couple times where I you know, went to a, an event or a party with some friends. But really, for the most part, I was just trying to stay out of trouble because I realized the trouble that I was in could potentially land me in jail. Did I continue to use? Yes, I continued to use as a teenager. I realized that school was more tolerable for me um, when I did consume cannabis. But I did learn don't smoke cannabis at lunch before algebra. Cannabis before math doesn't match. The most vivid memory that impacted me as a child, um, I would have to say if it was one action, uh, my bicycle accident. Uh, I was in like summer, third or fourth grade. We had a steep hill in my neighborhood. And, you know, back in the early 90s, mid 90s, helmets, nah, you mean cereal bowls? You know, we really didn't wear helmets and things of that nature. And I was racing a friend of mine down the street. Um, we we're going very fast, you know, crossing streets, not even looking. You know, you're a kid. You're not even thinking a car is going to come out and hit you, things of that. You don't think you're going to crash. And I would always beat my friend. And the loser had to ride back up to go to the local lady in the neighborhood that sold cookies and baked goods and get us a snack. And so he actually took off early this time and he was talking trash going down the hills. He built up speed. So instead of me saying, well, start over, you know, not me, the adrenaline junkie, I just take off down the hill. Um, when he actually got down the hill, he turned his bike and slammed on brake in front of me. To this day, I don't know why. Um, if I ever see him again, I probably wouldn't recognize him. Um, be good to see why'd you do that so my bike hit his bike and my hand got caught in my handlebars and so it sent me end over end face first to the concrete um crushed all of this um i was a mangled mess uh, knocked me unconscious um broke permanent teeth um lots of superficial injuries um lots of bruises contusions um i actually woke up with uh one of my older friends in the neighborhood i woke up i felt a pressure on my stomach and i opened my eyes and i was actually over his shoulder you know blood's pouring all out of my face and i remember just trying to breathe and spitting out you know blood and pieces of teeth and i remember him taking me in the house 
and clearing off my dining room table. I remember everything hitting the floor and things falling. And I remember him laying me on the table because there's blood all in my face and I'm all scraped up, all abrasions everywhere. It looks like I've been hit by a train or something. Um, my mom, I just remember my mom, because I just had the ringing in my ears. And I remember, like, through the ringing, I remember hearing my mom scream, like, oh, my God, you know, Goldie got hit by a car. You know, my family calls me Goldie. And that was probably one of my most vivid, you know, memories as, as a child. I had lots of dental appointments and multiple oral surgeries later. Thanks, Mom. Growing up in the 90s and predominantly during the crack era in America, I did see the effects of the failed war on drugs in my community um, directly. You could look as soon as you go out my front door and go out my fence. You could see it right there in front of you. When I was younger, you know, as was in the summertime, you could stay out and play and ride your bikes even after dark, you know, play hide and seek, catch fireflies and things. But once the peak of the crack epidemic really hit, it became dangerous. You know, I saw guys who were normal, you know, older guys that we saw in the neighborhood that were playing basketball at the basketball courts or playing football. They were now driving nice cars, wearing nice jewelry, you know, wearing nice clothes. And as kids, you know, we're looking like, wow, you know, that's really cool. He's getting making a lot of money. You know, he's the man, as they say. You have the other guys in the neighborhood talking about these people. But in hindsight, you also saw the working adults, the parents, the aunts, the sons, the daughters of the people that they were serving their crack cocaine to. And I saw that immediately impact a lot of my friends. I had friends whose parents or parent smoked crack, and oftentimes how they wouldn't have food um, or their mom would come home as we're getting on the bus to go to school. And I saw how it destroyed communities. It taught a lot of young African-American males that the way out isn't through education or, you know, wanting something bigger and better. It painted a picture of you can get out by selling drugs and you do get out by selling drugs. You get out of your neighborhood and into prison or you die. Uh, how did I join up for the military? I was in class one day and my counselor came in. They were talking about the ASVAB, which is a test to get into the military. And my principal stopped me because, you know, I'm back in public schools. I have a, a history of tr being a troublemaker. And he asked me if I wanted to leave school early. Um, if I took a test one afternoon, one morning, and I was like, sure. So I actually uh, smoked before I went in and took the ASVAB, and I scored high enough for military intelligence. How was my military experience? Uh, it started out very rough. Um, when I agreed on the phone to talk to a recruiter, I had just smoked. I did tell my recruiter I smoke all the time, and they were like, that's okay as long as you're clean when you go to boot camp. So I was like, oh, this is cool. So I initially signed up to go to the uh, United States Marine Corps. I was in the delayed entry program for over a year. We did lots of training, lots of exercises, getting ready to go to basic training. And halfway through, I did stop. Uh, after I graduated high school because I was preparing to go to basic training. And I got, I got kicked out of the military in the interesting process twice due to cannabis usage um, and failed drug tests. Uh, going to boot camp for the Marine Corps, I was actually at the base preparing to get 
on the bus when they had the, the moment of truth and it's anything that you've done during the process that will reflect bad upon the United States Marine Corps. And I want, I, you know, I had that Uncle Sam mentality and I was like, yes, um, during the process, I did use cannabis, but I don't smoke now and I am clean. And to some of those Marine Corps staff sergeant, that was an abomination. So I got kicked out again. They sent me home. And about a month or two later, I ended up uh, going to the Navy, um, actually. They leveraged and put my files over to the United States Navy, and I ended up going off to the Navy. As a veteran, when people tell me thank you for your service, and even as a firefighter, I know a lot of people are offended by that. A lot of people are thinking they should be thanked for that. With me, it depends on my day. It depends on what mood I'm in that day, how I'm feeling. If some of the psychological things that are bothering me are from that, that may not be the day that I want to hear that. Like, what are you thanking me for? You know, um, I did what needed to be done because no one else is going to do it. You know, I did. Don't thank me. You know, if we didn't do it, you know, we wouldn't be here today. And then there are times where I actually feel like a veteran, you know, because veterans, we deal with a lot. There are days that I'm proud. And when patient and when people do tell me, you know, thank you for your service, I'm proud to say, you know, you're welcome. But I don't think it's something that I, I should be thanked for. Um, there's there's certain things that happen in life that someone has to do something. And there was an attack on America when I was in high school that unfolded before my eyes in New York and our nation's capital. And I felt like I had to do something. How did I become a paramedic? Uh, I ran some really traumatic calls um, at the fire department, um, some of which had some seriously psychological lasting effects for me. Because I was wondering, was there more we could have done? What could have we done faster? You know, should we have drove the patient versus, you know, calling the helicopter? And just what more could I have done? And I knew that there was more that I could do, and that was expand my education. So I enrolled in paramedic school through the fire department. And I actually went on to become a very successful and decorated paramedic uh, with, along with some of my classmates within my department. What would I consider my funniest call as a paramedic? Um, a lot of things that we find funny, um, the general public normally finds disturbing. Uh, paramedics, firefighters, we all have a very twisted sense of humor at times. Um, it would probably have to be sitting at the red light. Uh, we're about 90% through a 24-hour shift with one of my partners, um, and we're sitting at the red light, and he was actually in the midst of one of his rants about how many calls we run because of me. He was like, you're the black cloud. You bring all this bad calls, all these wild and random calls. And we're at the red light, and it's about 5.45 a.m. We've been at work since 7 a.m. the previous morning, and we've been running calls all night long. And he's like, listen, man, you were on vacation. Nothing happened. We slept all night, and you come back for two shifts, and we haven't touched our bed since. And we're sitting at the red light and I'm like oh man it's cool you know it's fun you know you have at least you get to run the calls with your buddy and as we're sitting at the red light we just see a guy go flying through the air and a motorcycle with no person on it just goes sliding across the highway and so he immediately just looks at me and he shot me some explicatives that I won't say on camera. And, of course, I have to grab the radio, uh, medic to dispatch, you know, start company, wonder our location, uh, MVC, uh, motorcycle versus vehicle. And we've got one patient, multiple vehicles. Uh, we'll be establishing terrible of our command. And we get there. And luckily, the rider 
was very, very well dressed for the occasion. Um, lots of padding and helmets, but he still he did have injuries. But it was funny because that it stopped traffic. He had the heart bags on the motorcycle that flew off and hit other people's cars, and so they didn't know if they had hit him. And it's dark; it's first thing in the morning, headed to work, and so his cars pulled over everywhere. And so I see my my partner get out. We get our vests on. We're trying to block traffic with the ambulance waiting on the engines to get there. And there's this guy standing out there. <laughs> And um, it looked like it was early in the morning for him. And so my partner looks at him, and he's like, hey, man, did you just hit this guy? And the guy looks right at him and goes, no, I didn't. And so we're like, okay, so we're running first aid. We're getting the collar on him. We're trying to stay immobilize the patient. Um, the rest of the crews are coming up. The truck gets there. The engine gets there. So they're like, where's the motorcycle? And we're we have no clue where the motorcycle is. The motorcycle literally traveled probably a good 100 yards by itself, skipped a couple of lanes, went down the on-ramp near the interstate um, like a person was on it. So the guy pulled up to the red light, and he's sitting there, and the guy behind him just never saw the red light, never looked up, and just plows right into the back of the guy. And so once we get him on the backboard, we've got established at the scene, um, PDs on this call. So I'm just trying to get a better feel for the mechanism of injury. Look, I have to go look at the vehicle to see, you know, was there impact with the patient's head on the windshield? And I have to get a to get a you know, feel of how many injuries and the significance of the patient and the extent of their injuries. So I look at the vehicle and then I look at the motorcycle and look at the patient and it's obvious really quickly that this vehicle hit this guy's motorcycle. You're the car that's right behind him. And I look right at the same guy that my partner asked a question. So now I'm looking at the scene. I'm like, hey, man, did you just hit him? The guy looks right at me and goes, yes. And my partner's sitting there like, dude, I just asked you if you hit him. And so it's, it's hilarious. I know it's, but there's a guy on the ground. He's in stable condition. We're stabilizing. We're getting him on the stretcher. So we're getting him to the truck. And we get the guy into the truck, and he's complaining of neck and back pain. Um, he's, he's, he's fine in regards to how it, what could have gone on. And so the guy was like, well, can you call a family member and let my mother know that I've been in an accident? And we're like, sure, you know. What's your password on your phone? Your screen's locked because you got to think he's in the collar and he's all like this and his head strapped down and he's like, well, you know, just get my phone out, my jacket. And so we get the phone out and this taught me something, people. Make sure that your password or your code to your phone isn't too complicated in the event of emergency. You can correlate the information. This guy literally had, I think it was 32 characters in the password. And it would be like M apostrophe lowercase q seven four pound sign at question mark period period underscore L P like bro it has no but he was a like computer programmer or something from like Lockheed Martin so that makes sense that he remembered that long code but it was really funny because we're, it's early in the morning we're exhausted we're trying to put this long code and he has where when you put it in it doesn't show the characters on his phone Android. And it, that, that was just one of the funniest calls. I know people are like, what? It was, it was a circus out there early in the morning because you have to remember, people, we've been there at work for almost 24 hours at this point. We're exhausted. And it was just early in the morning. You know, my partner's already going off about how many calls he has to run with me. I'm like, dude, you're the black poison here. You're the reason we run these calls. Your energy attracts all these wild calls. And just to be sitting at the red light, you know, listen to one of his daily rants. And for a guy to just get hit right in front of us and go flying through the air, he just looks at me like, I told you. It was just, it was, it was perfect. Have I ever been called for too much cannabis? Uh, absolutely. Um, a lot of times, um, it, I found more cases that it was edibles versus smoked. 
And the reason for that is a lot of people, even if they don't consume cannabis, they don't understand that an edible is a concentrated form of the plant itself versus smoking it. Um, and it was usually when they were mixed with alcohol. Um, I picked up a 46-year-old female patient one night after a luxurious party at a mansion, and they didn't want the ambulance coming to this prestigious mansion, so they kind of just took her in a car with a friend to the post office at like 12 o'clock at night. And uh, we get in there and, sh- man, what happens is when people over-intoxicate, it can create a nausea effect, especially if the processing material wasn't clean or they didn't extract it properly or they put too much. And the patient had been drinking and it was bad because she was actually vomiting. You know, she was purging because she had alcohol and a lot of gourmet brownies um, at this dinner party. So, yes, um, we've had cases where teenagers smoke for the first time and they smoke something that was way too strong. Um, They kind of need to start, you know, at the subcompact level, but they went straight to sports car. And they, they were panicking, you know, the racing of the heart, the induced paranoia in some patients from the THC. So, yes, we actually get those calls a lot. Why did I retire from a paramedic? Um, I actually became very ill in the summer, late summer of 2014. Um, I had extreme pain in my right upper quadrant. It would cause me to pass out. At times, I was going to all types of specialists. I ended up going to have a biopsy. Uh, it was so unknown for my physicians what was going on, what was causing it in my body, that I ended up being treated at the Winship Cancer Center. So they were proceeding to treat it as aggressively as it was if it was cancer. And during that, I was just giving tons of opioids, uh, just uncontrollable amounts of opioids. And due to my history of addiction, I was currently an opioid patient. And it just really confounded the problem to the point where I was unable to work due to the gastrointestinal uh, illness as accompanied with the opioids. It made me a non-productive member of society. Uh, my body was physically in too much pain. It was too weak. I was unable to eat, uncontrollable vomiting. Uh, it was very rough. So I went out one morning to go to work. I went out, I did, got to the station and I did my normal routine in the morning where I come in, I check in with my guys, you know, we crack some jokes and I proceed to detoxify the ambulance with wipes, bleach, Lysol, cleaning all my equipment because, you know, I'm ready to be productive for that day. And I remember this morning, although I did my morning regimen with the Oxycontin and the, the uh, NSAIDs, the pain was just so significant. Uh, it's apparent that my crew could just tell that's not Atkins right there today. We've been known he's been sick for a while, but that's not the guy we know right there. And my lieutenant came out to the ambulance. Um, shout out to Lieutenant O'Neill. And he asked me, Stanley, if we got a working fire right now, which is an active fire, you know, that's working. We have flames showing. And if I went down, could you pull me out? Um, my lieutenant wasn't, wasn't a very big guy. He's a cross-country runner. And I knew under normal conditions, yes, uh, my brother in, in, in smoke is down. I'm going to get him out of there or we're not making it out at all. And I had to be honest with him and tell him no, because I know that in this profession, if you lie about something like that, someone will die. And he told me to you know, hand in my radio. I'm going home. And that was actually my last shift at the fire department. I used up about 12 to 1400 hours of sick time and I used FMLA and it came to the point where they were saying, you know, either come back to work or resign. 
something has to shake. You know, you went from being nominated for paramedic of the year to being gravely ill. And that was how that relationship ended. What role did my parents play in my upbringing as far as education, how that led to me to where I am today? Uh, my parents were very big on education, both my mother and my father. Uh, you will get good grades. Uh, you will pay attention in school. Um, you will graduate high school and you will pursue something after high school. Um, there was a mandatory graduation rule and there was a mandatory rule of you're going to go to the military or you're going to go to college, or, but you're going to do something. There's not going to be just sitting around. And I was always an intellectual, um, especially as a child. And I think that's what led to a lot of my mischief because I was bored and I didn't feel that I was being challenged in the right ways because I've learned that not everyone learns the same things the same ways. Some people learn from looking at charts and words. Some people actually learn better from hands-on. And I think that I was a lot more advanced than teachers even knew uh, when I was young. So. What is the Canamedic? The Canamedic is a culmination of my work in advocacy, education, healthcare, and my passion for cannabis. I realized that there was a significant gap when it came to disease processes, patients, healthcare resources, education, and how cannabis can work with a 360 approach within that realm. I realized that I was a patient myself. I realized that cannabis was a formidable choice and alternative um, for different disease processes. And I wanted to make it my mission to ensure that the educational resources behind cannabis was actually presented in a positive light by a person that actually had hands-on experience treating patients. Um, one thing that I've noticed that gives me a unique ability within this space to think and improvise strategically and quickly is my history as a paramedic firefighter. I'm able to adapt very quickly to circumstances. I'm able to adjust and improvise where a lot of others get caught up. I'm quickly able to circumvent problems to make sure that we achieve the same goal at the end. It may not have been the route we intended to take, but we still got the projected outcome. So how do you get involved and how can others participate in the work that my team and I are doing? Follow us on social media. Follow us on Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, Facebook. Uh, as you see here, we're going to be on the podcast. Um, follow us on LinkedIn. The name's Stanley Atkins II. You can always follow us here. Um, we're going to be doing a lot more work with the smartest media. So we've got some amazing announcements um, coming up. I'm going to be the, I've been now been appointed the new Georgia chapter president of Minorities for Medical Marijuana. Thank you guys so much for this tremendous honor. Honor. We're going to be holding monthly meetings. We're going to be holding mixers. We're going to be holding educational panels, workshops. We are here to be the conduit for the actual persons out here doing the work and the advocacy and who want to become the young entrepreneurs and the green rush, as it's called, but don't often at times have that liaison. And we want to be that liaison for the people. Um, you know, we do workshops that involve everything from how do you get into advocacy all the way to how do you start 
a business? What is CBD? You know, what is seed to sale distribution? These are all components of a very, very fast growing uh, system that is known as the cannabis industry. So please, we love to connect with each and every one of you. We are recruiting new members. We are expanding and we can't do it without you. How was cannabis an exit drug in regards to opioid addiction? And how can that help with the raging epidemic that is ravaging our country? Uh, For me, I did my research in regards to the endocannabinoid system, the signs and symptoms of detoxification, the signs and symptoms that I was having that is correlated to um, detoxing from opioids or substances that are foreign to the body. And it was a very long, difficult process. Um, I will be honest and say that it was not easy, but it was worth it. I learned about RSO or FICO as it's often referred to, which is full extract cannabis oil. And I learned that the pharmacological properties and the therapeutic properties that were caused by the pills and that was actually circumvented by the plant-based medicine actually worked synergistically together. So as one part of my body was rejecting and causing pain and causing inflammation, this plant on the other end was actually healing all those nerve endings and beginning to restore the actual balance in my body. It was a unique experience. Um, I wish that it was offered for more patients suffering from addiction. And I think that the miss, the main confusion that we're having with patients and advocates versus care providers when it comes to substance abuse and addiction is cannabis being seen as a drug versus a medicine. Cannabis is not the definitive treatment for everyone in every condition. We like to ensure that people understand this, that it's still medicine and there's still research being conducted. We like to ensure that people understand that it is an alternative to conventional methods. Um, There are some patients that have endocannabinoid systems that are hypersensitive, and sometimes it has an adverse effects, like sometimes too much THC can cause adverse reactions such as paranoia in patients and anxiety. If I could apologize to anyone, who would it be and why? I would have to go back and apologize to my former self um, for some of the things that I did to myself, for some of the things I looked in the mirror and said to myself, for some of the things I allowed myself to think and believe. I would like to go back to that person and apologize to them and tell him that I love him and I care about him. What is my biggest fear? I, I get asked that a lot, and I want people to understand that to understand that question for me, you have to understand the word fear itself and what is fear. And from my experiences and my journey, I understand that oftentimes fear is a lack of faith or belief. Because if you truly and are passionately a believer of in, in your faith and whatever that faith or practice or spirituality may be, but if you have true and undivine faith there's nothing you're fearful of that you understand what all goes on. So I, there's nothing I really fear. And I know people see this when you watch this interview. They're going to think, yeah, right. 
but those who know me closely know that he's not very fearful of anything. But there are things in the world that I'm weary of. So if we could go to that one, it would probably be sinkholes, Komodo dragons, and third, a sinkhole full of Komodo dragons. I mean, they have neurotoxic venom spit. Let's be serious. The freaking dinosaurs. What do I consider my greatest achievement? Never giving up. There are so many times in life where many give up. And my greatest achievement is when I've been pressed with those times where I felt like there was no reason to keep going. I didn't want to keep going. I never gave up. And for me, amongst all my declarations for my career, I think that that's the most pressing for me. What would I do if someone gave me $10,000? The first thing I would do was get my web developer on the phone and my executive administrative assistant and have them to connect with a few more of the resources that we're now seeking allocation of funding for. And that's going to be in way of some marketing programs as far as our digital platform that we're building. It would be enough to actually create to help us get to almost a phase one of the social web portal that we are building out, we would actually allocate that allocate that money very, very strategically to ensure that it is it's used to the best benefit in regards to getting us to the next level of the platform that we're creating. We can't give too many details out right now.